Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. to another week of Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, we are traveling back in time to post-war Vienna to talk the third man with our guest, Brennan Breed. My name is Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and victim of Viking raids and a writer in Pennsylvania. A, a victim of Viking raids, Adam? Matt, it'll all be made clear to you eventually. All right, fair enough. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University of Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas, and an eater of breakfast tacos. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch, and then we gather as ministers, theologians, writers, and people who love movies. This week, our guest, Brendan Breed, has asked us to watch The Third Man, and in our first segment today, Justification by Faith, we discuss what The Third Man has to do with ministry, theology, scripture, and the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with the third man for the lectionary week ahead, which will be November 12th, the 23rd Sunday of Ordinary Time. Finally, we'll offer up some postludes, preacher thoughts from each of us on something else we're watching or following. Before we begin, let me introduce our guest today. Brennan Breed is the Assistant Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary. He's also the author of Nomadic Text and alongside Carol Newsom, the co-author of a commentary on the book of Daniel. Brennan is also working on a commentary on Ecclesiastes. He's also the Worcester Cook theologian in residence at Church of the Epiphany in Decatur, Georgia. He's got a couple of adorable kids, Freddie and Margaret Ann, and a wife named Catherine and a dog uh, named Winnie. He also, when I was in seminary, led a youth group of 30 kids into uh, my dorm room, at which point he stole all of my stuff in what was, to uh, his mind, a Viking raid. So uh, I've had the chance to to hang out with Brendan for a long time, and I still haven't gotten any of my stuff back. So, Brendan, I've called you onto this show to ask you, where the hell's my stuff? <laughs> uh, thanks, Adam. Uh, and, and Matt, I appreciate being on the show. And uh, Adam, your, your couch is well taken care of. Uh, it is now my, my dog's dog bed. It's, it, it's, it works out great. <laughs> Thanks. I'm glad to see it's getting good use. All right, so let's talk about Third Man. Um, the Third Man is a 1950 masterpiece of form, technique, and story. Uh, among film nerds like us, it solicits all sorts of awe and gushing superlatives. Watching it again this week renewed my confidence in movies, in art, maybe even in the world, which is strange given the story. Set in post-war Vienna, The Third Man tells the story of an American author named Holly Martins, who arrives in Austria after receiving an invitation from his friend, Harry Lyme. Upon arriving, Martins is told that Harry Lyme is dead after being struck by a car. Suspicious of the strange story about Lyme's death, Martins begins to search for answers, only to learn that his old pal Harry is less noble than he imagined and also less dead. In what is perhaps the most famous film reveal of all time, Harry Lyme... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> played by Orson Welles is revealed alive and on the lamb in the Russian quarter of Vienna. Of course, caught in the middle of the story is a woman, Anna, Harry's lover. Written by Graham Greene, directed by Carol Reed, and scored beautifully by Anton Karas and his Austrian zither, the third man deserves all of the love. 
it's a template for so many fil- films and still feels completely original. It tells the story of post-war Vienna, but its conclusions about diplomacy, international collusion, American exceptionalism, and the curse of the past are still as fresh as ever. Its odd camera angles and stunning photography still leave me breathless, even after watching it again for the 15th time. I mean, my God, what a movie. So I'm done with my rapturous introduction. Brendan, you picked the movie. Uh, well, to be frank, I actually just like the expressions of Baron Kurtz. <laughs> no, r- really, uh, beside the fact that it's an amazing movie, I just th- I think that uh, if you can get past the fact that it looks and feels like a period piece at first, uh, if you can really get into the story and uh, get kind of enveloped in the atmosphere of the movie, I, it, it is so good at pointing out some of the underlying issues of our modern world and it works just as well as in 1949 Vienna uh, as it does today. I think there are some of the same issues that we're struggling with uh, that that really rose to the surface in the post-war era uh, and the the immediate aftermath of World War II and that we never really fixed. We kind of put some band-aids on some big problems uh, in in really Western culture and uh, uh, are starting to now smell the the in a way, the the stench, the stench that, uh, that lets us know that we never took care of that of, of those problems. So, for me, like one of those big problems is the role of America in in the world. Um, in a way, we built Europe back within a, uh, within a couple of years with the Marshall Plan. Um, we built a post war order to place America at the center of the world. We built a uh, economic system to try to keep America's economy uh, running well, uh, but. Really, much more than that, we uh, put ourselves at the center of every problem that occurs in the world. And this is something that popped up as a problem for us in Korea and in Vietnam. Uh, it remains a problem in places like Iraq and Afghanistan um, and Yemen. Uh, the America's place in the world is captured in this film uh, by the Western. And I think that the way that the, the role of the Western plays in this film, and Holly Martins is an author of the Western, uh, he, as the kind of bumbling American uh, is, 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 is hugely important for us today. Uh, I think the second big topic that really plays into this film, I think the, the way that it encapsulates the film noir and this moment of post-war, I mean, really the film noir beginning uh, sometime in the 1930s and 40s, but it's capturing this uh, post-depression era, uh, post-World War One, post-World War II, um, sense of malaise, of uh, worry, of anxiety, uh, of concern that the world order is actually not right, uh, that there isn't something like justice uh, that is right around the corner. And that leads us into a third big issue that you find in this movie that also I think is just ripe for discussion today, and that's uh, the problem of modernity. Um, we, we, we believe, believed for a long time that the world is just going to get better and better, uh, that things are right around the corner, the, that there's going to be some sort of uh, invention, some sort of economic transformation that's going to give us a world of ease, some sort of uh, fully automated uh, uh, luxury uh, communism in some way. Um, but w- what we found is that uh, the world that we've constructed for ourselves there's no utopia right around the corner. There's no uh, justice uh, that that America is going to bring and 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 put on the world and and bring into full view. And, and I think all of these issues bubble up in this film in ways that uh, are subtle, are nuanced, um, and that I mean, it just keeps me thinking for a long time after after every time I've seen this film, I've seen it five or six times. I think um, after every time I see it, uh, I'm I'm just left for a few days afterward with a sense that uh, this is a lens through which I can interpret my world. And for folks who are interested in theology like us, I think a huge 
uh, topic that pops up again and again in this movie is the crisis of faith, um, a crisis of faith in a lot of different things. It's brought up in the movie itself uh, with Holly Martins's talk that he has to give uh, at the Cultural Association, um, where he's asked to speak about the, the modern novel and the crisis of faith. And what we have is a crisis of faith in global order, uh, in the system of the world that we've constructed. Uh, we have a crisis of faith in uh, the ability of us as individuals to live in this world that we've constructed, uh, the ability for our communities to sustain where we are. Uh, I think we have a crisis of faith uh, in God and uh, what God has to do with the world that seems in some ways to be abandoned. Um, we have a crisis of faith uh, in our own artistic devices and ability to c create narratives of uh, virtue and wholeness and, uh, and aesthetic beauty um, in this world that we live in. So anyway, I think all those things are, are in full view in this film. And I think it's, it's, one of the, one of my favorite films to watch and talk about. Matt, if you watch this movie again for however many times you've seen it, uh, so what stood out to you this time as you were thinking about this from the lens of your work as a minister? Well, it was interesting. I mean, I I, I co-sign everything that Brennan has just said. I mean, I think this is a a, a remarkable kind of piece that that moves past. It's it's immediate cultural moment and has resonance and such resonance even even with us now, um, even from its very opening line. That opening narration is really powerful to me. That like that I never knew Vienna before the war is the first thing that comes out of the mouth of this unseen narrator. Um, I don't know whether you all watched the British or American version. In the British version, it's Carol Reed, the director who does this narration. And then when it was recut for the states, they they um they gave it to to, to Holly Martin's to speak on his own behalf, which I think has some strange implications. But I mean, it has this. There's this baseline nostalgia built in here, right? It's the nostalgia for a period when those orders made sense, when some kind of when some kind of optimism was possible, when some kind of institutional stability was possible. It's a nostalgia that feels totally ripe for 1949 and feels pretty ripe for 2017. And, and I, you know, and I, I feel that nostalgia in the church all the time. I mean, I, I talk about nostalgia on this show a lot, but perhaps never with more traction than I think this movie provides. Uh, this, this, this movie seems to be about a, a cast of characters, some of whom are able to have been able to adapt to the new kinds of rules and the new kinds of patterns and the new kinds of um, reward systems that the that post-war Vienna provides. And some characters who are stuck, uh, who can't move, uh, who, who can't move on. Uh, uh, Harry Lyme is described at one point as, as, as the world grew up around him, but he never grew up. Uh, Miss Schmidt, his love interest, has the same kind of piece where she, she's in love with him even after he is pronounced dead. She has no interest in adjusting or changing. And God help us, Holly Martins, our, our bumbling protagonist here, uh, who just looks like a, a rube compared to like the forces of, of Vienna that are pressing upon him. And he's lost in one of his own cowboy novels and has no sense of being able to, to grow or to change. Uh, and you know, I, I think those are pretty. Those issues have a lot of traction with with institutional churches and with the ways in which the church is called to change and the church is called to adapt. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. So, Brendan, as uh, as you were watching this, um, as someone who sort of is aware both of the social cultural implications and the history that's being talked about, this is also an, a movie written by Graham Greene 
who I don't think probably gets enough credit for being one of the most impressive authors of the 20th century, um, in part because he published so much. Um, but Green's, Green's hands are all over this, especially his understandings of faith and his understandings of who, um, of what constitutes faith. Um, as you were watching this, in what ways did the voice of Graham Greene sort of um, capture you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Graham Greene uh, wrote, a, 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 I think, a novelette or something, uh, but as a preparatory sketch, really, for the movie. And I think it went through a couple of different drafts, and then it ended up being edited, even uh, on the set, edited by um, Orson Welles, added some dialogue and things. Uh, so it was, it was kind of constantly evolving. But yeah, you can definitely see Graham Greene's imprint everywhere and and this looks to me a little bit like an inverse of a story like the power and the glory which is of course about the whiskey priest um someone whose life is falling apart and who can't see uh, god's grace evident in anything that they do in their life uh but also uh this is the same exact person who manages um in some way to keep faith alive in a part of uh, mexico that is under um tremendous stress and and oppression so this idea in graham green's work that um uh, of struggling with faith and with doubt, uh, with God's presence and God's absence, um, is, uh, you know, you can see this in that scene with Holly Martin's giving the speech, uh, and the cultural, uh, attache, whatever his name was, uh, Cubbins or Crubbins or whatever, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of, uh, uh, silly guy who doesn't really know much himself about, um, about culture, but it thinks of it in terms of propaganda, and then asks Martins to give this speech. Uh, and Martins gives this talk about the crisis of faith in the modern novel, which is, of course, I think the th the thread that uh, that runs through all of Graham Greene's work, that we feel like we've been uh, born into a world uh, that has all these long uh, narratives of of faith and of hope, uh, but we, we feel like we've been born in a time when some of these narratives are crumbling, uh, when it's impossible to continue to believe in some of these uh, long stories that have undergirded, um, especially Western culture, uh, stories of, uh, the kind of per eternal progress of humanity and that we're, we're going to, we're going to solve it all and so on. And so for Graham Greene, um, uh, I think this, the, the power and the glory gives almost like a positive side to this, that God can work through God's glory can work through even the worst of people. Um, in, in, in the third man, we have the, the story of Holly Martin's, this kind of He's trying to be a good guy. He's trying to help his friend find out what happened to his friend, get to the bottom of the story. And, uh, you know, he might be a bumbling guy, uh, uh, but he's he's he means well. Yeah, he's full same, of good intentions, isn't he? Like he's yeah. decent and full of good intentions. He's an idiot, but he's decent. Right. Right. And so he's trying to, to, to live in a, he, he hopes that the world is the world that he hopes that the world is right. He's, uh, uh, let me say that, say that again. Um, he's living in a world, uh, that he hopes is good and just and true underneath everything. So he's the detective, right? He's, he's looking around trying to find clues to what happened to, to, to set the world to right, you know, to make justice uh, emerge. Uh, but this is the part of his Western, right? He's a Western writer and he's trying to push that narrative onto his life. And he even talks about himself like uh, it's a major Calloway, the British uh, officer who's really the detective. And he keeps trying to say, well, you know, let me tell you about the story of the Santa Fe ranch or whatever and, and why this is why my life is like that. Uh, and, you know, the major Calloway says this isn't a Western novel. Uh, these are bad people you're you're running with. And and there's nothing good here. There's just death at the bottom of all of, all of this. Um and I think that crisis of faith, that crisis of modernity, that there's just death at the bottom of all of this, um, is one of the things that that Lime is, is it, it motivates Lime's character as well. So that that 
discussion they have in the Ferris wheel, I think, is just crucially important to understand. I mean, Graham Greene is a person, one a person who called himself even a Catholic agnostic or even a Catholic atheist at times. Uh, Greene struggled his whole life with hoping uh, to believe in, in God. And this uh, Ferris wheel scene where Harry Lyme is saying, you know, sure, there's a God out there. There's mercy and grace and whatever, but who cares about all that? I mean, look at those dots down there. I don't care if one of them dies, do you? Um, so the, this uh, idea that the, the terror and horror of the world might make him happy briefly, uh, but also uh, there's some folks down there that um, that might suffer. But uh, there's some good things that come out of it, like art, aesthetics, right? So the this final line that that Harry Lyme says, uh, where the, the the Borgias might have killed a lot of people, but you know, good stuff came from it. And the, the Swiss they had 500 years of peace and brotherhood, but they just invented the cuckoo clock. Um, I think this this idea, this uh, belief that Lyme has, really his theology, um, is is that pain and suffering might create uh, momentary joy uh, for s- certain people, for some people, not others, for the strong. And to me, this uh, this explains so much of our modern world. I mean, in capitalist uh, economies like ours, um, the strong get a whole lot, and people who don't aren't born with advantages or who aren't born in a position where they're able to take uh, uh, take advantage of certain structures and uh, the potential energies that they have and, and capacities that they have, they are stuck and they can't really move, move anywhere. I mean, this is part of the story of like Western industrialism as well. I mean, people get stuck in factories from the time they're kids and that's their life. Um, and so I think within this world where we've kind of lost mystery, um, where especially in the time of Graham Greene, people are thinking that science has kind of explained so much that where, where is God? Um, we now know so much about the history of the world that we can look back on it critically and say, boy, was God in all of this? You know, I think about um, the Walter Benjamin's theses on the philosophy of history, where he says, you know, basically like the the whole history of the world has been a history of uh, of terrible disasters, uh, and there's very little to say otherwise. Um, so in the midst of this, you've got this bumbling character, Holly Martins, who, who is trying to find some way to believe that there is truth and goodness and faith, uh, in the, in the world. Um, so anyway, I, I, yeah, I think that's, that, that, that's pretty much the, the heart of the movie. And that's, I think pretty much the heart of all the Graham Greene's trying to do now. Green himself, I think tried to say that this was just like an entertainment, right? This is just like, uh, this is a fun thing I wrote. Uh, and he even said it a couple of times, I just wanted this movie to be about kind of people make, trying to make people laugh. Um, but obviously it's much deeper than that. Well, so what's interesting about this movie to me as I watch it again is um, it sort of flies in the face of the Pauline Kael auteur theory that like there is a single visionary artist who's behind the movie because we've talked about Graham Greene. We've talked about Orson Welles performance. um, We haven't really talked about Carol Reed, but like his his camera choices, his directing is is superb in many ways. This movie is um, one of the m- best examples of what good artistic collaboration can create. Mm-hmm. Um, as I look at, like, everyone seems to be more than the sum of their parts. Like, it just, it works. And I don't think anything that Carol Reed ever does is better. Um, I think, as far as the screenwriter is concerned, Graham Greene's at the top of his game, but, um, and then gets a little help from Orson Welles. But, I, I couldn't help but watch this movie this week and see like how the cult of personality within so many of our churches also um, requires the minister to be an auteur of some sort. And yet watching this movie, I was just like, 
I was astounded by the acting at one point, the directing at another point, the score that continues to happen, the various different right. um, the various different ways in which these parts came together to create such an incredible story that is worthy of the depth that you're talking about. Yeah, there's one moment that that uh, showed this to for me, and I didn't notice this ever until seeing it this time. Uh, but at the very beginning of the movie, there's Carol Reed's, uh, and I, I only saw the U.S. I mean, sorry, I only saw the the, the English version. I've never seen the the U.S. version. In fact, and I'm kind of glad I haven't, um, but because uh, I love Carol Reed's uh, uh, narration at the beginning. Um, but at, 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 when that narration is going on, it's uh, seems like a straightforward story. Uh, the camera angles are all uh, straight on. Um, it's filmed in kind of wintertime with a lot of ice around and snow, and so there's a lot of reflected light. It's bright, uh, and when Holly Martin shows up in Vienna, I mean, he's the consummate American tourist, right? He shows up not like to get a job in Germany and hasn't learned a word of German, you know, <laughs> he kind of jumps off the train. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. This kind of moment of right. progress, right. You know, the jump off the train and I'm just going to walk in there and, and have this amazing life. Uh, and it's pretty soon after that, of course, that he finds out that Harry Lyme's dead or at least he thinks Harry Lyme's dead. Uh, but so it, there's, he walks up those stairway. He's like kind of bounding up the stairs in uh, the foyer of, uh, of Lyme's apartment. And he gets to the door and he knocks on it. And that's when the porter says to him, you know, excuse me, uh, basically Harry Lyme's dead. And it's at that moment, the, the moment that you hear that Harry Lyme's dead is the moment you get that first Dutch angle, which is that uh, camera shot where it's tilted mm -hmm. to the side. And after that, you pretty much only have tilted camera angles, distorted camera angles. Uh, look, you're looking at bombed out buildings uh, and things like that. But remember the interior of Harry Lyme's apartment building is beautiful. And uh, yeah, so you move straight from this uh, vision of beauty and, and happiness and joy. And remember, and remember the Carol Reed in the narration says he's, uh, Harry, Holly Martins was happy as a clam. And from that, you just get this disillusionment um, and disorientation and fragmentation in the aesthetic mode, right, with the, with the way that the camera is filming things, with the way they cut things. Um, you get the kind of disjointed sense of like this happy bouncing zither score along with these like <laughs> horrible events that you're seeing. Uh, and I, I think all of that is meant to create this anxiety in the viewer, um, which I think works like a charm. And I love it that it's not just a film noir trying to create anxiety with these levels of shadows, but it keeps bringing the the even more dissonant note that this is supposed to be something of a Western or it's supposed to be something of a simple detective novel, um, but it's not. It never is. Adam, I, I was wondering, as I was watching this, I was thinking about some of your work about the yeah. Fringy Detective. Yeah. And, and to what extent, like, to what extent Holly becomes a kind of pastor stand-in here, and I, you know, partly because I, I read this as the, from the perspective of of working in a church, but like there's this bit of I, I could see at a kind of surface level, like the the bumbling outsider who comes in full of hope and joy, and is and finds himself immediately trying to diagnose all of the like weird political undercurrents and all the weird connections and all of the weird passageways that go underneath. The, the congregation or the family system or whatever it is, that there's some kind of like instructive parallel here uh, that that feels a little dire to me personally about like what, what, what it is to try to come into that place. And then of course he falls in love. I mean, and that's what's so interesting about it is that like the, this movie kind of mocks him, but it doesn't really change him. Like even at the very end, he doesn't become 
the calculated conniving person that the movie kind of wants him to be in some ways he he gets out of the <laughs> so he gets pathetic. out of the, of the, the car I love that to go yeah, and try to and try to win the heart of of miss schmidt who has who has totally rebuked him at all times but he is still in love and he's leading with heart instead of kind of becoming the disillusioned post-war subject that the movie encourages him to be he's he's resolute and there's something pathetic about that but there's also something kind of amazing about it and it's and the camera just i mean the camera just sits there for a day and a half to watch him watch her pass him by as if he never mattered upon the face of the earth uh and i'm just i'm wondering about that from my own perspective in ministry but also just from your perspective as like the guy who writes about so i mean so this movie is an interesting one in part because i think that detective stories are mostly divided into two locales. One is the village, and that's where most of the clergy hang out. Um, but the other is the city. And this is most certainly a city detective story, right? Because the city detective stories never really resolve because you can't return the city to Eden. Um, and I think, whereas in the village detectives, the whole point is... Um, is to return the the idyllic village back to its primeval state, to its perfection, before, you know, Adam and Eve ate the apple, before the murder arrived, before whatever happened. Um, but you don't have that type of hope um, in the city. The thing is, Holly Martin thinks that he can return some measure of peace, to this place. And that's what makes him so pathetic a lot of the times. But like we said earlier, like he is so decent and he is so good intention that there is something attractive about him. But your idea about him being a little bit like a new pastor makes a lot of sense to me too, because I think the great peril of leaving something like seminary and entering into a congregation is that seminary has provided you all of these models for reality, but not actual reality itself. And uh, one of an important cultural theorist in, in my background is a guy named Pierre Bourdieu, and he says, uh, we have to always um, we have to always be vigilant not to exchange the model of reality for the reality of the model. The idea being we have all of these models about how things should work, but they're not actually reality. And reality is going to, at some point, disrupt our model. And if we're unwilling to allow our model to be disrupted, then we are in for all sorts of anxiety. Um, and I think that that's what's happening in this movie. I think Holly Martins comes in with this American exceptionalism, this idealism, this idea that the world can be made right. And I think he has that in part because he was in America during the Second World War, right? Like, yes, he saw people go off to war, but no one bombed his house. He never had to worry about, like, fleeing to the mountains because, you know, the opposing army was about to take over his city. And so he comes thinking that you can still, like, that the bad guy will always lose to the good guy. And he realizes, or he doesn't realize, but he is faced with this new reality that there is no good guys and there are no go bad guys. 
there are bad people. Yeah, there are evil people. But like, how do these categories even work in the post-war Vienna? Yeah, the, yeah, I think I think this is really fascinating. Like, I just, I'm starting to think about this in a slightly different way than I have before. That like, uh, the. I'm thinking of it in terms of like Paul Ricoeur's second naivete. That is that like right, you, can, yeah. you can you can be naive, um, but then you go through this period of disillusionment. I mean, everyone goes through this in their life, right? This phase where the things that you thought you believed and made sense of the world don't work anymore. And then what do you do? And then there's of course this reorientation or second naivete where you can, if if you can, you can might return not to a child childlike belief in the goodness of the world or something like that, but a chastened, um, you know, tenuous uh, grasp uh, uh, where you've re you've you've come back to the point where the world might be might there might be some hope and it might be good. And and I, I wonder because like Holly Martin's knows. I mean, he knows now. Like he did when he jumped off the train, he didn't know what the world was actually like. But he knows now. Uh, he's been down in the sewers and saw his friend that he sold out get shot to death. I mean, well, he you know, shot him. He shot yeah. him, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, right. He is. He's actually the killer. And like, but he's also seen these uh, children that are the victims of his friend's scheme and so on. And I think the the mirror image of that is is Schmidt. Uh, she chooses not to to know really, right? She doesn't want to know. She doesn't want to know the truth. And Baron Kurtz tells uh, Holly Martin's, "You don't want to really know the truth here." Uh, and remember, even Major Calloway says, "You don't really want to know the truth. Handle let the professionals handle that, right?" Um, but Holly Martin's, he doesn't actually let the professionals handle that. He 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 wants to know. And he finds out the truth. And then at the very end, it's almost like that moment of second naivete. He's decided to still hope that there's someone, you know, he can still love someone. That there still might be hope for, I don't know, like community in the wake of uh, this traumatic event. Um, and he might be rebuffed. But you get the sense that, like, he's going to turn down the airplane ticket. He's going to just stick around in Vienna and try to see what he can do. Uh, and I think that ending might be, like, the most hopeful ending that you can actually have in a movie like this. So, Brennan, I wanted to ask you something, too. Um as someone who actually translates things from time to time, I, I was really struck by the role of language in this movie and especially the conscious choice by uh, the filmmakers not to add subtitles to all of the German speaking people in Vienna. And this has a, a sort of um, a dislocating effect because we like Holly Martin's if we don't understand German, we feel this sort of anxiety of people talking about us or about what we want to hear, but have no way of accessing it. Um, we realize that this is not our community and not our world or not our culture. And there's a very acute feeling. Um, and I was thinking about sort of how translations work, especially within scripture. And I'm wondering, like, to what extent is a translation supposed to make the world familiar and to what extent is it supposed to make it foreign? And this seems to me a really important question for biblical translation as, um, as a way to, on the one hand, make the text accessible to a reader, and yet to also help the reader understand that this world is not your world. Yeah, that's a great point, a great question. I mean, I, I think part of the issue of translation, people ask me all the time, well, you're a biblical scholar, which translation should I use? And one of the things I say is, you know, don't use just one. Uh, use a bunch of different translations because some of them might be better, some of them might be worse, some of them might be handled with better skill, and some of them might be handled with worse skill. But ultimately, the point is that none of them capture the essence of whatever they're trying to translate. Uh, this it's impossible for something to do that. Uh, and instead, you you can approach it, or people approach it, the ta task of translation, with a number of different goals in mind, and those are going to eventuate in different kinds of translations. Um, so there might be a million good translations and a million bad translations. But uh, part of it is asking yourself, do I want 
the foreignness or do I want it to seem like something that's close? And I think that the interesting point here is that both of those things are are possible in every uh, piece of human culture. It's possible for us to read Gilgamesh and see it as something that tells us about our own world and that might instruct me about the human experience. It's also possible for me to read Gilgamesh and see it as this product of some alien culture that is radically different than my own, has radically different presuppositions and concerns and whatever. And, uh, and both of those are possible through translation. And so sometimes I try to offer people translations that do both of these things and say, both of these are okay. The question is, what do you want? But also for you to realize that both of these things are true, not only of this text, but of yourself, right? There's uh, the part of you that is alien to yourself. And there's also the part of you that is uh, uh, easily accessible to yourself. And that's true of your communities too. Uh, the, uh, one of the things I love about um, interacting with text from different times and places, but also with people from different cultures, uh, with different religions, different uh, traditions, and so on. Part of what I love about it is it makes me feel weird about myself, right? <laughs> like you start to like feel that yourself is out of place. Um, so in this movie, we see Martin's uh, awash in a sea of German, and he can't understand any of it. And uh, for most Americans, uh, and for most British who watch this movie, um, they also can't understand right what's happening in in these scenes. And you get you get a sense for it. I love that the first real bit of German that you hear, uh, besides the conversation that uh, Martin's has with the porter, is at the funeral, and the priest is speaking in German. But you know what it is, right? Uh, he's saying about something like the Heilige, you know, the Holy Spirit. Okay, I got I got that. It's a blessing, and so on. Um, but then uh, at other points in the movie, like there's the woman who is um, uh, at uh, Schmidt's apartment, and she's talking very fast, and and it's even if you speak German, it's a little bit hard to pick up what she's saying. Um, and so that disorientation, I think, uh, that that he has walked into a place where that he thought would be seamlessly part of his own experience. Um, and he still is trying to connect with folks, even German folks, uh, as if they should understand each other perfectly. Um, but there's always that remainder. And I think a big part of this movie, too, is that that remainder is a part of all of us. I mean, when, when Martins tries to narrate his own life according to this thing that he knows best, the Western, um, it keeps on failing. And in part, that's because he doesn't understand himself. And he doesn't understand his own place in the world, but also his own his own role in the story. Um, so in any event, I think that the the part of translation that is always fascinating to me, and I think that that works here, is that uh, there's there's always something that you can translate that makes you feel familiar, and there's always this unfamiliar that will always remain. You know, this kind of a uh, uh, unheimlich, right? This kind of like a uh, 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 almost scary. Uh, uncanny thing about language that it can always communicate, but it always it, it resists our complete understanding and, and, and assimilation. We can't just use it. Y'all, we are so grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century, and we want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. And the Archives of the Century is an interesting 2013 interview with Pico Ayer about Graham Greene. The interview delves deeply into the work of Green and its theological significance. It is totally worth a read, especially if you are playing movie camp with Third Man this weekend, and we will post it on our show page for anybody interested. Also, if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, let's move on to the lectionary this week. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir looking at the lectionary passages for November 12th, the 23rd Sunday in Ordinary Time. It's a great week for Old Testament passages and uh, and other. <laughs> for the Joshua passages, Joshua gives a rousing history lesson, an ultimatum complete with the verse perfect for, crossing, or for cross-stitching across your favorite pillow. 
the wisdom of Solomon speaks of wisdom. Uh, Amos hates your festivals and wants justice to roll down like waters. In the New Testament, Paul gives a glimpse of the coming apocalypse, and Jesus tells a parable about some bridesmaids. Brennan, as you survey these passages, what's standing out to you as you think about the themes of the third man? So from my perspective as an Old Testament person, but also someone who teaches about the prophets uh, quite a bit, I think uh, Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 24 resonates so well with the third man. So in verses 18 and 19, uh, Amos tells this amazing story that really is fit for a film noir, I think. Uh, so uh, in his day, uh, in Amos's day, a lot of Israelites were waiting and hoping for God to kind of pop into space and time and destroy all the Israelite enemies, make everything amazing. And they called this the day of the Lord. It was going to be like a party day where uh, Yahweh decided to smack down on all of the enemies of Israel. But the people who are hoping for that uh, tended to be the elite folks that were living sort of in ease off the fat of the land. And that fat of the land was being provided by the peasants uh, who were living hopeless lives of crushing debt and hunger, uh, who Amos yells at all the time. So Amos uh, excoriates the leaders of Israel, uh, and that's the first five chapters of the book. And here in chapter five, near the end, uh, he tells them that their hopes that God would come and make their lives even better uh, and take away even those small things that might make them upset, those hopes are totally misplaced. Uh, when God comes to save everybody, the elites are going to suddenly realize that all along they were the enemies. So like Harry Lyme says, nobody thinks in terms of human beings. Governments don't. Why should we? They talk about the people in the proletariat. I talk about the suckers in the mugs. It's the same thing. They have their five-year plans. So have I. That sounds to me like uh, pretty much what Amos was mad about, that exact attitude. Uh, and that seems also like the attitude that Amos uh, thinks that the northern Israelites had. Well, when God uh, shows up and asks about mercy and all that, as Lyme would have said, and the people in those positions of power, they refuse to think of other people as human beings. Well, uh, we are going to find that uh, they're going to be shrouded in God's judgment and darkness and not in light and happiness. So the story that Amos tells after that, after saying, hey, look, the day of the Lord is not going to be light and brightness and happiness in a party. It's going to be awful and terrible for you. Uh, the story is about a guy that runs away from a lion, which if you think about it, it's kind of amazing. Like, what if you made it away from a lion? That'd be rad. Uh, but then you like were met by a bear, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like you turn the corner and you're like, wow, I can't believe I got away from the lion and the bear's there. But then let's say you get away from the bear too. Like you manage to escape both of those killer animals and you make it into your house and then you put your hand on the wall and you're like deep breathing, deep breaths, you know, like, oh my God, I can't believe I got away from two killer animals. And then right then a snake comes up and gets you, bites you on the hand and you die, right? Uh, that's what the day of the Lord is going to be like, this overturning of expectations. Uh, some amazing stuff's going to happen and you're going to think that you're safe. Uh, but in fact, that's going to be your downfall. Uh, so there are no heroes in this story, uh, which is much like a, a film noir. Uh, and Amos insists after that, that the sacrifices and pomp and circumstance of Israel don't do anything for God. Um, this is kind of the opposite of Lyme's statement about the Borges and how like all this horrible stuff they did ended up in this aesthetic beauty. Uh, Amos says, yeah, there may be some aesthetic beauty that comes with this uh, or horrific uh, culture that we built, but God really isn't interested in a ton of suffering that produces this uh, little bit of aesthetic beauty. God might prefer the cuckoo clocks uh, of Switzerland along with justice. Um, so this idea of this ancient Israelite really um, ideal that uh, – God desires worship. Uh, Amos, I don't think, would deny that or argue against it, but instead I think he's saying, my God, when you're worshiping, but also you're killing children uh, by cutting their penicillin with water in order to make a buck, um, or when you're a world power uh, and you've decided to um, murder your own, uh, uh, your, own, your own citizens, or uh, when, when 
you're running a global uh, uh, financial system, and it's really uh, designed to try to take as much as possible from people who already have very little and give it to people who already have very uh, very much, um, that this is, in fact, grotesque to God. And I love the verbs, by the way, in uh, in, in that part of Amos. Uh, it, it's, you know, God isn't going to, like, listen to your songs. God's not going to look at your sacrifice. God's not going to smell that the verb accept there is actually smell. God's not going to smell your sacrifices. God's going to shut off to you. And God demands that justice rolls down like waters uh, instead um, of these sacrifices. So I think that uh, plays along with the idea of the third. It's a condemnation of the whole world order that the third man itself is is pointing out. Um, it, it, Amos is hoping, beyond hope, uh, that God is actually going to get involved and jump in and take care of something. Uh, but before that happens, um, God is going to ask that people do the work of trying to change. So it's a, it's a systemic critique in a way. I think the Joshua text is pretty interesting, too, if you think about it as a covenant renewal ceremony. Um, uh, I, I always love pointing out when we get to Joshua 24, like they've, the people have come into the land. They're, they're, uh, there's all sorts of ethical and, and theological problems that we have in the book of Joshua. If we watch Inglorious Bastards and talk about it sometime, maybe I'll talk about how I think Joshua is a, a revenge fantasy. Um, but in any event, uh, it's you know, brutality and violence is something to deal with. But at the end of this book, uh, Joshua tells all of the people who are with him who apparently have been like, you know, with him since Sinai and who like are coming into the promised land now to put away their foreign gods which should strike us as kind of funny and strange. Like, where are the foreign gods? Where did they pick those things up when they were attacking the Canaanites, right? Um, didn't they just come out of the wilderness and so on and promise allegiance to Yahweh a long time ago? Uh, it seems pretty clear that, that at the end of Joshua here, we don't just have a covenant ceremony for the people who have been with Joshua the whole time. This is Joshua. This is this is really the Israelites welcoming people into their community who want to leave Canaanite culture and so on. Uh, they, they want to become a part of this new people who lives in the in the in the, the highlands uh, of of central Palestine. So this is the formation of a new kind of polity, uh, where they're all people are going to agree and make a new family. And I love to point out that covenants, uh, covenant is a huge theological word, but it's it's not actually that important a theological word in the Old Testament. Um, it's just a word that means a deal, a contract, an agreement. Uh, and it's the same thing that you would do if you got married. You'd make a covenant. It just means you say, do you want to marry me? Yes. Okay. Um, and some of the language of the making covenants is pretty powerful as well. Like when, when Ruth uh, and Naomi are, are, are talking and Naomi, Naomi says, please just leave me, go back home. Uh, Ruth says, your people are my people, your gods are my gods, and so on. That, that's actually covenantal language. Uh, she's making a covenant. And, and it's also the possibility of the formation of, of family, of, of lineages and, and kinship linkages that didn't exist previously to you making that, that speech act of saying it. Um, so here we got this act where Joshua's saying, hey, let, let's be a new group of people with a new mission in the world. We're going to bring God's blessing to the, you know, he doesn't quite say that, but it's the whole idea is that God has picked these people in order to be uh, a priestly nation, as uh, uh, Exodus 19 says, or to bring blessing to all the nations of the world, like Genesis says. We're going to be this group of people who's going to try to do something different in the world on behalf of God, this this kind of new family. Um so he, he says, you know, you can't be half-hearted about this. You can't. You, this is this is a commitment that you have to make for your, for your whole life. Um, I, I see this as kind of the exact opposite of the modern situation, um, where we're all individualized, our grand narratives are falling apart. Uh, we believe that we're disillusioned, that there could be goodness in the world. Our our systems are failing us and are actually leading people to commit atrocities rather than to do good. Um, I think this covenantal mindset um, is really uh, a way for us to think about how, how do we build community? How do we build neighborliness? Um, 
in reaction to this world where things are distended and pulled apart. Um, I, I think, you know, Holly Martins was trying to be like at first this rugged individualistic hero of his own cheap dime store Western novel, right? Uh, but I think this is entirely different. Um, we are going to enter into this thing together. Um, we're going to give our loyalty to God and our neighbor. Um, we're going to try to create a community that demands honesty and recognizes that there's inherent dignity in all of us and so on. Um, this is a pretty strange thing in the ancient Near East, and I think it's pretty strange today, too. Um, and I think this is the thing that Holly is hoping for and looking for at the end. He wants human connection uh, that goes beyond and is more important uh, than just himself or just uh, to have a good time. Um, he, he wants to do good in the world, but he doesn't know how, and he can't find other people who want to join up with him. So in any event, I think this is, this is a big part of that. That's great. Matt, as you were looking at the lectionary passages and watching The Third Man, what was standing out to you? Well, I, I don't want to get into the Old Testament with an Old Testament <laughs> scholar, so I want to talk about the gospel. <laughs> uh, I've just kind of noticed, and I'll, I'll, I'll be super brief, but I just kind of noticed this uh, this parable of Matthew 25, this parable of the, the bridegrooms and the bridesmaids, um, which is a parable about kind of eschatological hope and expectation and patience. You know, it's, it's written to a community that is kind of anxiously waiting for the for Jesus' second coming. Uh, and so we tell a story about the the ten bridesmaids, five of whom bring extra oil as they go into the night to wait for the coming of the bridegroom, and five of whom do not, and then everybody falls asleep. And when the bridegroom comes, uh, or when it's announced that the bridegroom is on his way, only half of them have enough oil to kind of relight their lamps and be ready and they get to go to the feast, and the five who did not bring enough oil uh, have to um, are left out. And it's 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 an interesting moment because it feels like an invitation to not just hope, but a kind of patience, a kind of intentional, uh, a kind of intentional and persistent hope that seems totally at odds with the 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 language of. Of, of of darkness and shadow that linger through this movie this kind of the kind of constant undercutting of holly's ambition of his determination of his optimism I mean, we've talked through this the the world doesn't respond well to these qualities it's something that makes him feel super out of place and yet i think this text is is in some ways calling us to something like that and it, not to willful naivete but to something like resilience uh, which is why again i find that that final moment in third man i, I as, as pathetic as i find him i also find him endlessly sympathetic yeah i agree matt i as i was reading the lectionary passages i was i was quite drawn to the wisdom of solomon passage um and we don't really talk about the sort of intertestamental stuff very much on this podcast but hey, hey if, you're, if you're me it's right there in the testament man yeah <laughs> it's still for, our testament for, for for our episcopal and catholic and anglican brothers and sisters so uh, let me talk about the wisdom of solomon for a second which is this um really interesting little moment where the text is encouraging you to like show up not just be patient but like you got to show up to be the bride the bridesmaid you have to like be present and says you know like if you're vigilant you will find her wisdom in the light of the day she'll be sitting right there at the gate um and i couldn't help but read that in light of of vienna which almost never is shown in daylight in this movie right um 
everything happens at night. Everything. There are so many shadows. There are so many sort of like wet streets where light is refracting different ways. You can never totally be sure uh, how large someone is because the shadows are casting so huge over buildings. Um, and so I started to think, what does it mean to find wisdom in Vienna? Because what wisdom is left? Okay, she'll be sitting at the gate, but what if the gate has been destroyed? It's been bombed by, you know, Russian forces. And at the end of the day, I, I, I read the wisdom of Solomon and recognize its value while also trying to figure out sort of what its point is for people who are diligently searching for wisdom, someone like Holly Martins, and yet there's no wisdom to be found. And I started to think about this, and it was easy to contrast um, with Job 28. Job 28 is the interlude, right, uh, Brennan? Yes, it is. Right? So there's this strange little interlude in Job 28, and no one's really sure where it comes from. You know, it's, um, no one, it's not in the voice of any of the friends or Job. Um, and it's an interlude about wisdom. And it's a little less confident confident that wisdom is easy to find and there are all of these beautiful images of like miners swinging from ropes searching for precious gems in the dark um and that this is um this is how hard we look for gems this is how hard we need to look for wisdom like sometimes at least as i read the scriptures um this stuff is hard to find it takes work um, and this seems to me like the better analogy for searching for wisdom in Vienna. It might be there, really, it might be there, but it might be buried under a bunch of rubble of a bombed out building. And it just is going to take a lot to unearth it. And Adam, if I can just add, it seems yeah. to me to, to, to link up with both the Matthew 25 passage and with the, the epistle for the day, the First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, where like Paul is pretty clearly addressing a people who have no hope. Um, that who are who who are feeling the weight of the world and the weight of the Roman Empire, and they're not sure they can make it. Uh, they're not sure if they have enough for the long haul. And so uh, Paul says, you know, basically, please keep talking about this stuff. Tell each other about the hope that you have that something someday will happen where God breaks in and fixes the world. Uh, you know, someday people will come back to life and so on. But uh, until then, you have to hold on. You have to keep talking to each other about this. And it seems to me like that's um, uh, it, it's it's a a clue that actually uh, early Christians were most of the time uh, not feeling like the world is great and everything's fine and, and Jesus loves me and so on. But that actually the weight of the world, the, that that moment of, of despair in Vienna is actually the human condition. And that, that that's wisdom too, uh, to know that that's the truth. And then maybe there's an extra bit of wisdom that's hard to find beyond that, which is that that's not the end of the story. Yeah, that's, uh, and that's always the hard part, right? Which is um, it, it feels like the end of the story. You know, death does feel like the end. You know, it, it, as, as Calloway says, you know, like, this is the bottom of everything. Mm -hmm. Death is at the bottom of everything. And so leave it to the professionals. And in some ways, Paul is saying, no, death is not at the bottom of everything. And really, like, if we do leave it to the professionals, they'll just continue to tell us that death is at the bottom of everything. Yeah, or or even that like a death actually is at the bottom, but then the, look, one day the bottom's going to fall out. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it, yeah, well it is it is true that death is the end, but then you know, miraculously, there is more.
Well, many thanks to you both, and especially to you, Brendan, but I think that does mean that it is time for us to move on. And unfortunately, Brendan, that means saying goodbye to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, for suggesting this awesome movie to revisit, and for uh, chatting with us and helping us think about it a little bit. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, Matt, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following or reading. So what's your postlude for the week? Adam, I have a super fresh hot take because I have just been to see the new Thor movie. I mean, you're like the first. I'm like, I'm, you know, by the time this episode drops, I'll be like the 15th, 100th person with a Thor take. But right now, as it's coming out of my mouth, it's like super fresh. Anyway, so uh, here's my take. This is it's it's a fun movie. Like I really I really enjoyed it. It's got this like Taika Waititi has this like weird beat to him that totally resonates here and totally makes it fun. But this is also a movie with like a surprising amount to say about the importance of telling true histories. Like the conflict in the movie is really a conflict about history. It's a conflict about. Uh, how Asgard got to be there and how it got to be so rich and powerful in the first place, Asgard being the mythical realm where Thor lives. And I'm just not going to explain the rest of the Marvel verse to our guests. But and it, so there's, there's this, a few moments where this hits. Like there's an early scene where Thor comes across a play in the street in Asgard, which is really like a telling of his own story, but it's in reverse. So the character who's playing Loki, his mischievous villainous brother, is heralded as the, the savior. And the character who's playing Thor is kind of just dismissed as the tag along. And you can see this like you know, totally bothering him. Like, why won't they tell the truth of what happened? But then, of course, what comes out is that, like, the whole truth of how Asgard got to be there isn't, hasn't really been told. Uh, one of, and later on, there's a scene where one of the characters literally destroys a section of mural and fresco in Asgard that depicts this kind of rosy history of the city. And underneath it, we find the old covered over frescoes that have the true story. It's like the true painting which is considerably less charitable, but it's been covered up by rulers that had every interest in keeping it under wraps. So it's kind of a movie about reckoning. And, and the Ragnarok, which is this kind of periodic destruction that comes along, is kind of a penance. And, and I couldn't help but see in the kinds of reckoning and penance in this film some parallels with our own cultural moment, wherein apparently we are constantly now relitigating the causes of the civil war and re-understanding yeah, right. the kinds of violence and destruction and like literal slavery that accompany our our country from its first moments and it and it feels increasingly to me like part of the ways that we've got to try to figure out how to preach about race especially in 2017 is this kind of role of of telling true histories uh and i feel like this is a really heavy challenge that I not always entirely comfortable with or feel equipped for, but still it's like sometimes you have to stand back and knock the frescoes off the wall to get to the truth underneath. In any event, for like just like two cents, for the folks who are looking for metaphors around how to talk about the ways that we are relitigating all this history, I think Thor Ragnarok has some really interesting, useful moments, and I recommend it. That's really interesting. I mean, it, it actually dovetails with the conversation that we had on our last episode about uh, about music and appropriation. And I wonder to what extent we've done a poor job of helping people understand the history of the slave spirituals that we still sing. Yeah, sure. Um, 
and that that there is some necessary cultural and historical education uh, that is needed before we sing these with the sort of full-throated lament that is contained within them, right? In some ways, us singing them now requires us to come to grips with both our complicity and the way that we continue to benefit from the legacy of slavery, but also the ways in which the plantations of the South and the Caribbean um, birth this medium that we now sing. And it was birthed from this incredible mixture of lament, celebration, hope, despair, and death. Yeah, absolutely. And the way in which those plantations also birthed like the economic power that allows so many of our denominational bodies to get off the ground in the first place. Yeah, that's right. My postlude is a little bit about history as well, in part because as we have in the Protestant Church been celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and thinking about Martin Luther and his uh, contributions to the tradition, I've been wrestling with these slogans that really came out of the Reformation, the the solos. And I've been in four or five churches, Protestant churches, largely Presbyterian, that have been doing um, a sermon series around the solas, for instance, right? And so they talk about sola gratia and sola fide and sola scriptura. Um, and then maybe they add a couple of more to you know, round out the the important doctrines of the Reformation. And I've been wrestling with um, with them and how inadequate some of the slogans are for talking about things, and especially Sola Scriptura. I, I'm just wondering still, this side of modernism and this side of continental philosophy of the 20th and 21st century— to what extent do we still need to talk about sola scriptura? Is it still a doctrine that makes any sense in our churches and in our worlds? And in part because of its its focus on the ways in which scripture is the preeminent source of understanding both the world and itself. And my own hermeneutic really pushes back at that in a lot of different ways. And so as I've been wrestling with this, I was as you do, reading um, the the writings and the teachings of, of some Hasidic masters. Um, and there's these two Hasidic masters that I, I particularly love. They're brothers, or Reb Zusia, or Zusha, as he's often called, or, and Reb Elimelech. Um, they're brothers, and Zusha is eternally optimistic and happy, and Elimelech is eternally severe and harsh. And the stories of their birth and their training are these just wonderful, fantastic stories. Um, Zeusia, like, loved to roam the woods singing the praises of God while Elimelech would study Torah diligently. And Zeusia would sit at the feet of the great Magid of Mezarich. And the master would begin, God spoke to Moses. And then Zeusia would fall into this, rapti- this rapturous repetition of, like, God spoke, God spoke, God spoke. And he would make such a commotion that everyone would ask him to leave. Um, anyway, these, these two Hasidic masters are the best. I love reading about them. Um, but in one portion of their teachings, Eli Melek says something that struck me, and especially, especially in light of the Reformation. Uh, he says, 
the Torah is given once, but it is received a thousand times and in a thousand ways. And this is about the closest I can get to sort of reconciling my own particular theologies of Sola Scriptura, which is there is the giving and we don't actually have a part in the giving, but we have a part in the receiving and our receiving happens over and over and over again. And that our relationship with scripture requires receiving the scriptures again and again and again and in a thousand different ways. And so the scripture in all of its wisdom and witness to the revelation is given once. But for me, I think it's the thing that we keep receiving over and over again. No, I never fully always felt like Sola Scriptura was more helpfully understood as like a rallying cry and less as a full-throated doctrinal statement. And I say that as someone who grounds my sense of worship and my sense of preaching as, as clearly and, and fundamentally in the text as I possibly can. But that nonetheless, I think when the reformers were saying Sola Scriptura, what they, what they meant was, you know, we don't need the interpretive power of the papacy or of the, the magisterium, of the right. magisterium to, to, we, don't, we don't need that kind of traditional deposit of wisdom in order to figure out what church is and who we're supposed to be. Uh, and, and, and so there's a, I understand that claim is more of a rejection than as a, to, as a totalizing worldview. And, 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 and so for me now, yeah. like when I say sola scriptura, what I mean is, the encounter with scripture that happens both in the community of discipleship, but also in an encounter with the Holy Spirit. So it is, it is sola scriptura, but it's, but there's a lot of other agents engaged in that moment. <laughs> right. And that's the, that's where the, the sola part of the scriptura begins to break down. And I think as a, I, you're right, these are, these were slogans. Um, and to, pin deep theological meaning upon slogans is always a problem, though it's something that the church has continued to do over the last 500 years, I think. And it's the thing I continue to hear in these sermon series that, I, that I'm uh, listening to. And you're right. And while I don't have a particular magisterium, I do have an implicit magisterium in the background who is handing to me um, a tradition of interpretation of which I can both interrogate and not see at the same time. And, sure. um, and I want to be able to recognize that and say that like this, these voices from the past are, are wrapped up so innately and intrinsically in my own voice and interpretive strategies that to call it Sola almost totally misses the point about how we interpret I mean, I think it's, I think it can be a rallying cry without ever trying to be, or without us pretending like it is an accurate and honest statement about how we actually operate as Bible reading subjects. Uh, I mean, because of course, at no point were we ever able to actually operate independently of the way that tradition forms us and the way that communities form us and all the preconceptions that we bring when we encounter a text like that. It's, it's impossible. And yeah, as you point out, like the last 150 years of philosophy and critical theory have shown that pretty clearly. But 
Nonetheless, I mean, I think, I think it's still a hopeful rallying cry for all the things that it's trying to prime us for. Yeah, I mean, and in that way, maybe Prima Scripture yeah. is, is where I can start, you know. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode, but we are not quite done yet. Next time, we have another guest joining us, Kenda Creasy-Dean. Kenda is professor of youth, church, and culture at Princeton Seminary, our alma mater, Adam, and also author of Almost Christian. Well, I'm really looking forward to Kenda's perspective and looking forward to having a chance to pick her brain a little bit. Well, that wraps it up for today. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page to discuss how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, we are scheduling our spring shows right now and would love to hear your suggestions for guests. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page, technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Muskowski. That's my dude. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Bigger Than Jesus. All right, Matt, that's it. See ya. Thanks, Adam. <laughs>